2: Welcome to Black History Unveiled with me, Amat Levine, the podcast where we spotlight pivotal moments, influential figures, and groundbreaking movements from Black history, from the continent to the diaspora. Some people question why history is important. They might feel like history, especially Black or African, has nothing to do with them. But how we write and interpret historical events directly influences how we understand ourselves and our present time. Understanding history makes it easier to understand our world today. This is the second part about transatlantic slavery. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I highly recommend you pause this episode and go back, because there's a lot in this episode that will be confusing or harder to follow if you haven't listened to part one. I want to remind you that this two-part series is not designed to cover every facet of this vast topic, as that would require an entire season of episodes at the very least. Instead, our goal is to paint a broad picture to help you grasp the unique features of the transatlantic slave trade, the forces that drove it, and the factors that allowed it to persist for over 400 years. Because, no matter how you slice it, no matter what else you compare it to, this period stands out in human history or, as historian James Walvin put it in his book Freedom, the overthrow of the slave empires. Quote, there was, however, little in the history of slavery that approached slave trading in the Atlantic world between the 15th and 19th centuries. This oceanic trade was unique in its size, its geographic reach, and its global influence. End quote. While there have been many types of slavery in many parts of the world throughout history, I think that quote encapsulates why it's relevant to continue studying the transatlantic variant. In Part 1 we traced the origins of transatlantic slavery. We examined how Portugal's exploration of Africa and Christopher Columbus's so-called discovery of the Americas set the stage for this grim chapter in human history. We also examined slavery as a global phenomenon present in many societies worldwide. We also debunked some myths, such as the misleading assertion that Africans, quote-unquote, sold their own. This statement overlooks that historically, modern markers like black or African didn't exist. Instead, African people identify themselves based on religion, culture, language, and ethnic group. Therefore, those Africans involved in the slave trade typically viewed it not as selling their own, but as selling enemies, rivals, or foreigners. This is a subtle, yet crucial, detail. Since people always mention it when someone talks about transatlantic slavery, I assure you that I am aware that there also was a slave trade of black Africans in North Africa and the Middle East. Rest assured, I will dedicate an entire episode to this topic in the future. In this episode, we will delve into the lives of enslaved people. It's easy to get lost in statistics, to talk about millions enslaved here, and the number of deaths there. But we mustn't forget that these were real human beings. The horrors these people endured are among the most unimaginable atrocities. So be warned, some quotes and scenes in this episode are dreadful. But the reason I share them is not to revel in the suffering. I share them because it is essential not to forget the brutality the victims were subjected to. In this episode, we will focus on the golden age of transatlantic slavery, we will explore the factors that allowed the trade to reach such an extensive and intense scale, we will also examine how slavery varied across different regions, emphasizing that the situation in the United States didn't always represent the rest of America. The first object which saluted my eyes when I arrived on the coast was the sea, and a slave ship which was then riding at anchor and waiting for its cargo. These filled me with astonishment, which was soon converted into terror when I was carried on board. I was immediately handled and tossed up to see if I were sound by some of the crew, and I was now persuaded that I had gotten into a world of bad spirits, and that they were going to kill me. Their complexions, too, differing so much from ours, their long hair and the language they spoke, which was very different from any I had ever heard, united to confirm me in this belief. Quote. The account continues a while later. Quote. When I looked round the ship, too, and saw a large furnace or copper boiling, and a multitude of black people of every description chained together, every one of their countenances expressing dejection and sorrow, I no longer doubted my fate, and quite overpowered with horror and anguish, I fell motionless on deck and fainted. When I recovered a little, I found some black people about me, who I believed were some of those who brought me on board, and I'd been receiving their pay. They talked to me in order to cheer me, but all in vain. I asked them if we were not to be eaten by those white men with horrible looks, red faces, and loose hair." End quote. He continues. Quote, Soon after this the blacks who brought me on board went off and left me abandoned to despair. I now saw myself deprived of all chance of returning to my native country, or even the least glimpse of hope of gaining the shore. But the story's not over yet. I was soon put down under the decks, and there I received such a salutation in my nostrils as I had never experienced in my life, so that with the loathsomeness of the stench, AND CRYING TOGETHER, I BECAME SO SICK AND LOW THAT I WAS NOT ABLE TO EAT, NOR HAD I THE LEAST DESIRE TO TASTE ANYTHING. I NOW WISHED FOR THE LAST FRIEND, DEATH, TO RELIEVE ME. BUT SOON, TO MY GRIEF, TWO OF THE WHITE MEN OFFERED ME EATABLES, AND ON MY REFUSING TO EAT, ONE OF THEM HELD ME FAST BY THE HANDS, AND LAID ME ACROSS I THINK THE windlass, AND TIED MY FEET, WHILE THE OTHER FLOGGED ME SEVERELY. I had never experienced anything of this kind before, and although not being used to water, I naturally feared the element the first time I saw it, yet nevertheless, could I have gotten over the nettings, I would have jumped over the side. But I could not, and besides, the crew used to watch us very closely who were not chained down to the decks, lest we should leap into the water. And I have seen some of these poor African prisoners most severely cut for attempting to do so, and hourly whipped for not eating. These words were written by Ulauda Equiano, and are among the earliest and most renowned of the testimonies that enslaved Africans left behind. It serves as a chilling testament to the horrors endured by the victims. They offer a glimpse into the brutal violence they faced and the relentless fear that gripped their hearts. Imagine the torment of being torn from your homeland, sold like chattel, with no understanding of why or where you were being taken. Remember his name. We'll revisit his story later. Our previous episode concluded with Portugal charting the western coast of Africa, and in the process igniting the transatlantic slave trade. Initially, they employed a brutal process of outright abductions, but over time their strategy evolved into a form of diplomacy—buying human beings by offering valuables, forging alliances, and making grandiose promises. While exploring Africa the Portuguese colonized small islands like São Tomé and Príncipe, Madeira and Cape Verde. Here, they established plantations where enslaved Africans were forced to work, and some of these plantations, particularly those cultivating sugar, began to generate vast fortunes. But in this episode, our story begins in the late 15th and early 16th centuries, Christopher Columbus, sailing under the Spanish flag, had recently set foot in America, and soon the Spanish would be joined by the Portuguese, the French, and the British. The newly discovered lands presented immense commercial opportunities. Instead of the small islands in the Atlantic or off the African coast, the Europeans had now discovered entire continents to conquer. Sugarcane took center stage once again. It was a crop that produced an almost addictive end product, something we modern humans continue to crave. Everyone wanted sugar, but the challenge lay in its cultivation. It was an incredibly demanding crop to grow, and the colonizers soon realized it was virtually impossible to entice free laborers to work on the sugar plantations. So, just like on the islands off the African coast, the solution became slave labor. Besides, enslaved people could be used to cultivate other crops too, as well as to mine the countless minerals and metals that lay hidden beneath the earth. Initially, the indigenous peoples of the Americas were the target of European enslavement. The Spanish introduced the encomienda system, wherein the crown granted select colonizers the authority to extract labor and taxes from the indigenous populations of a specific area. In return, the colonizer pledged to protect the inhabitants and civilize them by imparting Christian teachings. This was intended as a form of regulation of the violence inflicted upon the natives, but in reality it was just a form of slavery. Unsurprisingly, once entrusted with a group of indigenous people, the colonizers subjected them to grueling labor and meted out brutal punishments for any disobedience. However, as the 16th century dawned, despite the ongoing enslavement of the native inhabitants, Europeans began to favor importing enslaved people from West and Central Africa. One of the primary reasons was the decimation of the Native American population. The brutal violence unleashed by the colonizers and the introduction of foreign diseases ravaged the indigenous peoples, leaving death and destruction in their wake. Smallpox, measles, bubonic plague, malaria— Influenza and other diseases began to spread rapidly after the Europeans landed, with catastrophic results. Many millions of indigenous people perished, and entire communities were obliterated. Eventually, there were not enough natives left to enslave. The demand for slaves had surpassed the dwindling native population. The Catholic Church, too, played a role in this horrendous chapter. In 1452, Pope Nicolaus V issued the so-called Dum de Verses, a papal bull, which granted King Afonso V of Portugal the right to subjugate all, quote, Saracens and pagans and other unbelievers and enemies of Christ, wherever they may be, as well as their kingdoms, duchies, counties, principalities, and other property and to reduce their persons into perpetual servitude, end quote. By the way, Saracens was the term used by Christians in the Middle Ages to refer to Muslims. As I've mentioned before, this period was marked by constant conflict between Muslim and Christian kingdoms. In 1454, the same Pope issued another bull, the Romanus Pontifex, which explicitly granted the Portuguese king the right to invade and seize all areas south of Cape Bujdur in present day Mauritania and to enslave its non Christian inhabitants. In his acclaimed book, Born in Blackness, American journalist Howard W. French writes quote, These papal bulls did more than grant the Portuguese exclusive rights, they signaled to the rest of Christian Europe that the enslavement of sub Saharan Africans was not only accepted, but encouraged. Then there were individuals like Bartolomé de las Casas, a Spaniard who arrived in the New World about a decade after Columbus discovered it. In 1502 de las Casas arrived on the island of Hispaniola. Like many other Spanish colonizers in the Caribbean, He partook in the rampant abuse of the local population during the conquest of the land. As a reward for his participation, he was made an encomendero, entrusted with the responsibility for a group of indigenous people. A few years later, he was also ordained a priest. One of the campaigns he participated in was the Spanish conquest of present-day Cuba. He had heard others condemn the treatment of the natives. Still, the atrocities unfolding before his eyes in Cuba shattered his convictions. In one of his many writings, he noted, One time the Indians came out to greet us with food and gifts, Came ten leagues from their large village. Then, when we got there, they gave us fish in abundance. Bread, food, to the limit of their larder. All of a sudden, the devil got into the Christians. Right before my eyes, they put to the sword, without provocation or cause, more than three thousand souls who sat in front of us. Men, women, children. I saw their cruelty on a scale no living being has ever seen or expects to see. End quote. A while later, in the text, he continues, There was an official on the island who received an allotment of three hundred Indians. At the end of three months' time, he had worked to death in the mines two hundred and seventy of them. Thirty survived, a mere tenth. They gave him another three hundred and more, and he killed them, more, and he killed them, until he died and the devil took his soul. In three or four months, during my stay there, seven thousand children died of hunger because their parents had been hauled off to work the mines. I saw other things as fearsome." In the 1510s, Bartolome de las Casas instead began to advocate for the rights of the original inhabitants of the Americas. He returned home and pleaded passionately before the Spanish crown to end the brutal encomienda system. But one of his proposed solutions for ending the suffering of the indigenous people was to replace them with enslaved Africans. Through his consequential writings and relentless advocacy, Bartolomé de las Casas wielded significant influence CHAMPIONING LEGAL CHANGES OVER FIVE DECADES THAT WOULD MITIGATE THE HARSH TREATMENT OF THE INDIGENOUS INHABITANTS, YET AS HE APPROACHED HIS FINAL YEARS, HE ADMITTED THAT THE ENSLAVEMENT OF AFRICANS WAS JUST AS CRUEL AND UNJUST. BY THIS POINT, HOWEVER, THE MACHINERY OF THE SLAVE TRADE HAD BECOME ALL TOO LUCRATIVE, AN ENTERPRISE TOO PROFITABLE TO STOP. Historians disagree over the extent of de las Casas' role in popularizing the enslavement of Africans. After all, the transatlantic slave trade had already begun, so he can't be blamed for that. But it is fair to say that his early writings were hardly in the Africans' favor.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
1: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
2: Another apparent reason European colonizers began enslaving more and more Africans was that West and Central Africa were the most convenient. It was partly due to the wars between African kingdoms in these regions that created a steady supply of prisoners and fugitives to buy but also due to pure geography. If you look at a map, it becomes obvious why Portuguese traffickers in present-day Brazil imported their enslaved people from what is today Angola. After all, it's just a direct sea route across the ocean, a much more efficient route than if they had set out to buy people from, for example, Asia or the Middle East. In addition, the prolonged contact between Africa, Europe and Asia commonly referred to as the Old World, had granted Africans a certain resistance to the diseases brought by Europeans. Their innate resilience against tropical diseases such as malaria also proved invaluable. Another factor that shifted the focus toward enslaving Africans rather than indigenous populations was the social fabric of the natives. The indigenous people had deep-rooted family ties and existing loyalties in their homeland, making escaping and organizing rebellions easier. Slave traders deemed it more efficient to uproot individuals from their familiar surroundings and keep them captive in distant lands. Even if enslaved Africans managed to escape their plantation in the Americas, the vast expanse of the Atlantic stood as an insurmountable barrier. Even so, There are remarkable accounts of enslaved individuals who defied the odds and successfully made the journey back to Africa. But that's a story for another episode. The Church's influence on this matter went beyond what we discussed earlier. Do you remember the 1479 peace treaty I discussed in the last episode, the one brokered by the Pope, where Portugal gave up its claims to the Castilian throne? in exchange for ownership of all discoveries south of the Canary Islands. In 1494, Spain and Portugal reached an updated agreement, known as the Treaty of Tordesillas. This occurred only a few years after Columbus set foot in the Americas. The two nations divided the world's new discoveries between them. Portugal retained Africa south of the Canary Islands. And gained rights to all discoveries in the Eastern Hemisphere. At the same time, Spain claimed the New World except for certain parts of present-day Brazil. The agreement was ratified by Pope Julius II in 1506. For Portugal and Spain, this agreement seemed like a splendid solution. However, other European nations found it far from satisfactory. Besides, the Church's reform and split into Catholic and Protestant branches in the early 16th century only compounded matters. The emerging Protestant states shrugged off the Pope's decrees and refused to sit by idly while Spain and Portugal monopolized all discoveries. Consequently, The 16th and 17th centuries witnessed a surge of newcomers to the transatlantic slave trade. Not just powerhouses like Britain and France, but smaller nations, such as the Netherlands, Denmark, and Sweden. In a future episode, I'll delve deeper into Sweden's little-known role in all this. The Mechanisms of the Transatlantic Slave Trade become apparent when you examine its other name, the Triangle Trade. European ships, laden with a myriad of goods, including weapons, gunpowder, wine, metals, and clothing, embarked on voyages to West and Central African ports, where they traded these commodities for enslaved men, women, and children. These unfortunate souls were then confined within the claustrophobic, nightmarish holds of the ships, enduring unimaginable hardships during the transatlantic journey. Upon reaching ports in North and South America, the Africans were sold. Once the ships were emptied, they were filled with the lucrative cargo of the New World – sugar, tobacco and rum – before returning home to Europe. In addressing this part of human history, it's crucial to underscore the incredible suffering endured by those enslaved, and their ordeal started long before most people think. Most of us have seen movies or read books about how the enslaved were whipped at their plantations, or were subjected to all kinds of torturous methods by their masters. But remember then, that their suffering, at the very least, started several months before. After all, many of those enslaved were prisoners of war, and had, thus back in Africa, already experienced one of the worst things we as humans can be exposed to. War. Others were abducted, convicted criminals, outcasts, or individuals deemed undesirable, meaning that they too had already experienced something potentially traumatic, even before the point of enslavement. Many captives were transported from far inland to the coastal forts of European powers. These grueling journeys could span over 500 kilometers, hundreds of miles, navigating treacherous terrain and taking months to complete, all while enduring violent punishment, sexual assault and the indignity of being chained together. Upon reaching the coast, survivors faced the heart-wrenching reality of being sold and branded before being herded into the fort's catacombs, holding pens, or dungeons. Imagine the horror of hundreds, even thousands, crammed into these dark, suffocating spaces, devoid of light and ventilation, as the unforgiving tropical heat pressed down upon them. Trapped for months— They waited in despair for the slave-ships to appear on the distant horizon. Once aboard these vessels, the enslaved were stripped naked and inspected. They were then packed tightly under the deck and shackled to each other. Each enslaved person was allocated as small a space as possible to maximize profit. The exact dimensions varied between the ships, but were usually so small that you had to crouch or lie down to fit. In his book, Africa, a Biography of the Continent, British author John Reader sheds light on the gruesome specifics. In 1713, for instance, the Royal Africa Company, a British participant in the slave trade, dictated that each enslaved person would be allowed, quote, Five foot in length, eleven inches in breadth, and twenty-three inches in height, End quote. as reader correctly notes, most coffins are bigger. There are many testimonies of how barbaric this crossing of the Atlantic was, but one of the most famous comes from Ulauda Equiano, the man whose story this episode began with. He was just a child when, in the middle of the 18th century, he was kidnapped along with his sister in what is today Nigeria. The siblings were torn apart, marched to the coast, and sold. Ulauda Equiano is also known as Gustavus Vasa, the slave name his new owner gave him. It is unknown why the owner chose that name, which resembles the 16th century Swedish king Vasa. What is most remarkable about Equiano is that, after years of slavery, he had the incredibly rare luck of ending up with an owner who allowed him to purchase his freedom. An opportunity he seized in seventeen sixty six, carrying the weight of his experiences, Equiano eventually ended up in England, where he put pen to paper to share his story. In 1789 he published The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Ulauda Equiano, or Gustavus Vassa, the African. It was a testimony of monumental consequence, and became a cornerstone of the emerging anti-slavery movement. At the beginning of the episode I shared his account of when he was dragged aboard the ship, but in the book he also writes about the hellish condition he and the other enslaved endured as they crossed the Atlantic. It's quite a long quote, but it indicates how nightmarish it must have been on board. He wrote, quote, The stench of the hold while we were on the coast was so intolerable loathsome that it was dangerous to remain there for any time and some of us had been permitted to stay on the deck for fresh air, but now that the whole ship's cargo were confined together, it became absolutely pestilential. The closeness of the place and the heat of the climate, added to the number in the ship, which was so crowded that each had scarcely room to turn himself, almost suffocated us. This produced copious perspirations, so that the air soon became unfit for respiration, from a variety of loathsome smells, and brought on a sickness among the slaves, of which many died, thus falling victims to the improvident avarice, as I may call it, of their purchasers. This wretched situation was again aggravated by the galling of the chains, now become unsupportable, and the filth of the necessary tubs into which the children often fell and were almost suffocated. The shrieks of the women and the groans of the dying rendered the whole a scene of horror almost inconceivable. End quote. Now the necessary tubs, as Equiano put it, were these large buckets for human waste. And these were the buckets, or tubs, that he describes the children often falling into. In the book he also writes about how some enslaved people would rather throw themselves overboard to certain death than stay on the ships. The fact that large numbers of people were dumped from the slave ships, partly those who jumped voluntarily in suicide, but primarily those who died or were killed for other reasons, and so to speak were buried at sea, meant that the slave ships were often followed by sharks that feasted on the bodies. According to other testimonies, you could smell the stench of a slave ship as it approached. Yellow fever, tuberculosis, stomach disease, stomach parasites, and dysentery thrived in the cramped quarters of the ships, and the food and water the enslaved received were in such small quantities that they barely survived. During unforeseen events, such as storms or the ships becoming lost, entire cargoes of enslaved people could be dumped overboard to conserve enough rations for the crew. ALEXANDER FALCONBRIDGE was a famous British surgeon who served aboard slave ships on four voyages in the 1780s and later became one of the champions of the anti-slavery movement. In 1788 he published the book An Account of the Slave Trade on the Coast of Africa, in which he gave an account of what he had seen. Falconbridge wrote, Quote, Upon the negroes refusing to take sustenance, I have seen coals of fire, glowing hot, put on a shovel and placed so near their lips as to scorch and burn them, and this has been accompanied with threats of forcing them to swallow the coals if they any longer persisted in refusing to eat. These means have generally had the desired effect, I have also been credibly informed that a certain captain in the slave trade poured melted lead on such of the negroes as obstinately refused their food." He also writes about what the crew subjected the enslaved women to. Quote, the officers are permitted to indulge their passions among them at pleasure and sometimes are guilty of such brutal excesses as disgrace human nature." A while later, Falconbridge writes about the consequences of the lack of fresh air in the hold where the enslaved were kept. He writes that some of the ships were equipped with portholes, openings on the side of the ships that led fresh air down to the slaves but he also wrote that storms, or rough seas, often caused these openings to be closed. He describes such a scene from one of his travels. While they were in this situation, my profession requiring it, I frequently went down among them, till at length their apartments became so extremely hot as to be only sufferable for a very short time. But the excessive heat was not the only thing that rendered their situation intolerable. The dick, that is, the floor of their rooms, was so covered with the blood and mucus which had been produced from them in consequence of the flux, that it resembled a slaughterhouse. It is not in the power of the human imagination to picture to itself a situation more dreadful or disgusting. Considering these testimonies, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the death toll was high. According to estimates, 10 to 20% of the enslaved lost their lives during the voyage over the Atlantic alone. But there is something else I also want to focus on. Perhaps you've seen the drawings that illustrate how tightly the enslaved were packed on the ships— Most people probably don't know that this wasn't only for the thirty to ninety day voyage across the Atlantic. Often they could be trapped below deck for three, four, five, six, seven months while the vessels were languishing just off the African coast, waiting to be loaded with additional slaves. You see, to maximize profit, the ships had to be filled to the brim. The human traffickers did not want to go with half-filled cargoes, so sometimes for months they could lay anchor and wait or slowly travel between various slave ports along the coast before they finally set off. When the ships reached one of America's ports, the enslaved were washed and prepared for sale again. They often had to endure another agonizing march inland since the sale didn't always happen near the coast. For those who survived the entire ordeal from Africa to the New World, their reward was a lifetime of servitude. Once sold, the roles they were forced into were as diverse as they were taxing. They could be forced to work on plantations and in the mines, be forced to work as shepherds, fishermen, carpenters, cooks, maids, lumberjacks and seamen. They had every type of job you could imagine. The ever-looming threat of brutal punishments added to the persistent torment. Any attempt to learn how to read or write, practice one's original faith, socialize freely or dare escape was met with unimaginable cruelty. It is also important to emphasize that sexual abuse of mainly enslaved women and children frequently occurred in all the stages I just described, from the capture in Africa, to the journey across the Atlantic, to the new existence in America. Both in the African slave forts and on the sea voyages, the only semblance of respite from their confined quarters could often coincide with sexual abuse. When I visited Elmina Castle in Ghana, the guide told me that the only time the women were allowed to wash was when they were brought up from the dungeons and were to be made ready to be used by the governor, officers or soldiers of the forts. Despite its harrowing human cost, slavery was a gold mine for the Western colonial powers in America. Imagine possessing a colossal, unpaid workforce that you could exploit mercilessly, generating infrastructure and products that you could trade and export. In this way, the new states literally grew on the shoulders and backs of the enslaved, and at home in Europe, The countries built prosperity on the money that the labor and suffering of the enslaved generated. The insatiable demand for enslaved Africans led to heightened conflicts among African kingdoms. Some declared wars on weaker neighbors for the sole purpose of capturing and selling their people. The European supplied firearms added fuel to the fire, further destabilizing the region. Imagine, for example, an African leader of that time, with a kingdom devoid of firearms, surrounded by those armed to the teeth with them. Chances were high his or her kingdom could become a target for enslavement. What is the best defense in such a precarious situation? Perhaps that leader would decide preemptive offense attack, capture and sell inhabitants of another kingdom to gain access to firearms needed to defend the borders. In this way, the slave trade constantly created new conflicts, which in turn created even more refugees and prisoners of war who could be sold into slavery. This mechanism is vital for understanding how transatlantic slavery could continue for so long. It's a common misconception that most enslaved Africans were kidnapped by European slave hunters. This view oversimplifies a complex reality. Most of all, when the transatlantic trade began, the Europeans held no significant technological advantage over West and Central African kingdoms. Europeans could not simply stomp in and mow down all resistance with advanced weapons, as was done later during colonialism in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries. And that's why the Europeans, during the transatlantic trade, were concentrated around their forts along the coasts. They simply weren't powerful enough to take on the African kingdoms that were inland head-on. In addition, they quickly fell victim to the many tropical diseases beyond the coastal areas. While instances of Europeans outright kidnapping Africans did occur, they were not the norm. The Europeans' strength were outside their weaponry. It wasn't the threats of violence, but the economic and strategic advantages Europeans could offer that enabled the trade. In a future episode, I will talk more about the consequences of the transatlantic slave trade for Africa. For now, we can just note that the Africans who profited from the slave trade were a select few, groups who were usually already well-off, kings, local leaders, aristocrats, and successful merchants who saw slavery as a means to increase their wealth and power. There is, therefore, a class aspect to all this, which is sometimes lost. The elite slave-trading minority grew richer. At the same time, ordinary Africans, the vast majority of the population, could only watch as their surroundings collapsed. As I always remind you, you must be careful about generalizing about Africa because it is a massive continent with incredible regional differences. So, of course, different things drove the African leaders involved to sell people to the Europeans. For some, it could be a, excuse the cold expression, practical way of getting rid of convicted criminals or historical enemies. For others, it could be out of sheer desperation not to be enslaved themselves. But in most cases, it was classic human driving forces, such as greed a way to increase one's power or expand one's borders. As we talk about those Africans who were willing participants in the trade, we also need to focus on the even larger number of those who opposed it. Common ways to resist were for African societies to build defensive positions and establish early warning systems. Sometimes entire villages could relocate to more inaccessible inland regions. In some places, like today's Angola, full-scale wars broke out between African and European countries over the issue of slavery. And enslaved people resisted by, for example, escaping, refusing to work, trying to fight, or committing suicide. Their resistance was relentless from the moment of capture in Africa, through the harrowing journey across the Atlantic, to their forced servitude in America. In North and South America, enslaved people who escaped often formed communities in mountains, swamps, and jungles. The Maroon Colonies, as they were called, were a thorn in the side of European colonizers as they raided plantations and liberated their enslaved brethren. The high demand for New World commodities—sugar, rum, tobacco, silver, gold, and cotton—drove European colonizers to claim vast tracts of America's land. It was only by continuing to establish new plantations and open up new mines that they could keep the production rate as high as possible. And new plantations and mines required an ever-increasing labor force which fed the inexhaustible appetite for new enslaved people. The triangle formed by transport between Europe, Africa and America became a wheel that continued to turn in the name of emerging capitalism. And that is one of the most distinctive features of the transatlantic slave trade, what makes it a world-unique phenomenon. As we have already noted, Slavery was commonplace in many parts of the world at this time, including in Africa, but this was a new type of slave trade, one that was deeply rooted in capitalism's constant pursuit of growth and increased revenue. And if more money were to be made, more people needed to be enslaved. In several places, such as the Kingdom of the Congo, Local African leaders were, therefore, initially okay with selling enslaved people to the Europeans. Again, the people sold were mainly prisoners of war, criminals and other undesirables. However, as the Portuguese greed for slaves grew, they began to kidnap or buy individuals not considered slaves by the Congo Kingdom, even members of the elites. This escalation led to a devastating war between Portugal and the Congo, a conflict we'll explore in a future episode. The idea of finding, so to speak, the beginning of racism has long fascinated historians and anthropologists alike. Is racism something innate in humans, just a consequence of being programmed to be afraid or suspicious of the unknown, or is racism, as it is sometimes claimed, something we learn? The question is far too big for this episode, it's a highly complex topic that also depends on how you define racism, prejudice, discrimination, and so on. But it can be said with great certainty that racism against black Africans and transatlantic slavery are closely intertwined, the two things influenced and strengthened each other. The fact that black people were made slaves meant that they were seen as inferior beings over time, and the fact that they were seen as inferior beings made it more legitimate to enslave them. Black people were considered godless pagans and uncivilized barbarians, and in the eyes of Europeans they therefore became natural targets. Europeans may have had racist thoughts about black people even before. But it was during the transatlantic slave trade that the ideas were solidified and institutionalized the latest estimate is that over 12 and a half million africans were enslaved between the 15th and 19th centuries as part of the transatlantic trade up to 2 million of them died during the boat journey across the atlantic however It is important to note that this number don't take into account the many millions that were killed when captured or marched out to the Europeans' African coastal forts. In addition, there were many million more who lost their families or were displaced as a result of the slave trade. One thing that I find most people are surprised by is the destination of all these enslaved people. Of the more than 12.5 million shipped to America, fewer than 400,000 were imported into the United States. Brazil was the primary destination for enslaved Africans, with nearly 5 million imported, primarily from present-day Angola and the rest of the western parts of Central Africa. In second place is the Caribbean, with common destinations like Jamaica, Haiti, Cuba, and Barbados. Despite the United States accounting for less than 4% of the slave imports, it is often slavery in the American South that many people think of first when they hear the word slavery. I know we have American listeners, and for you, that makes perfect sense. It's only natural to focus on what's closest. But I would argue the same is true here in Europe and definitely here in Sweden. We also think of the US first. This perception is probably partly due to the Western world's fascination with the US and the numerous movies, TV shows and books that focus on that particular region and era. But for that reason, it's crucial to understand, though, that slavery in the United States stands out in several ways. Unlike the Caribbean islands, for example, the U.S. had seemingly endless farmland and sugar production didn't dominate the industry, creating diverse jobs for the enslaved. That there were more and, in comparison with sugar production, less demanding tasks created more room for different relationships between the enslaved. Now, please note, I am, of course, by no means saying enslaved in the U.S. had it easy. The slaves were constantly subjected to horrifying treatment. I am saying enslaved in some of the sugar-dominated colonies in the Caribbean, in many cases, had even worse conditions. These factors contributed to a higher population growth rates among the enslaved in the United States than enslaved people in many other countries. Since newborn children of enslaved people were automatically considered slaves, the owners could multiply their investment and therefore had no incentive to discourage this development. Over time, Slavery in the United States came to feature a complex and strange intimacy. Owners claimed to be doing the enslaved a favor by rescuing them from the barbaric Africa and giving them a hard but fair existence in the West. This twisted logic painted black people as underdeveloped children, needing guidance and mentoring, in the form of a stern head. In some circles, you can even come across versions of this excuse even today. Slave labor itself was considered to some extent to be the slave's reparation for being lifted out of Africa and being welcomed into the warm bosom of Christianity. In another episode, I will talk more about how the Bible was used by slave owners in the American South to legitimize the slave trade. Some have used this cultural trait, the peculiar intimacy, to portray slavery in the US as more benevolent than slavery elsewhere, a bizarre and obviously incorrect notion. The infantilization of the enslaved was rooted in the thought that black Africans were inferior, and the enslaved were subjected to enormous amounts of violence and dehumanization. To claim, then, that slavery in the U.S. was a benevolent or paternalistic institution is wholly wrong. Whether slave owners genuinely believed they were doing the enslaved a favor or were simply using it as an excuse is challenging to determine since we can't read their innermost thoughts. But it sure seems likely that they didn't believe it themselves that they instead were intentionally using it to mask the selfish exploitation of other people, to paint it as something sacrificial and noble, a Christian act. However, this mindset did generally lead to the enslaved in the U.S. being treated more as long-term investments, unlike in some places in the Caribbean, where they were viewed more as expendable goods. We'll return to that in a future episode about the Haitian Revolution. So, despite only about 400,000 enslaved people being imported to the United States, the population growth meant that by the time the American Civil War broke out in 1861, there were as many as 4 million slaves in the country. So, like I mentioned before... Slave imports to the U.S. only accounted for a small percentage of the total transatlantic trade. But a distinctive and important dynamic in the U.S. was that the country developed its own domestic slave trade. States that were considered to have a surplus of slaves simply shipped them to states needing more of them, destroying families in the process. The invention of the cotton gin in the early 1790s made it easier to separate the seeds from the fibers and made cotton farming infinitely more profitable. This led to a huge surge in slavery, since they were the ones expected to pick the cotton. By then, the U.S. had long stopped relying on transatlantic import of slaves and instead relied on their own domestic slave market. While cotton exports increased at a staggering rate, so did the growth of slavery, and this continued all up to the outbreak of the American Civil War in the mid-19th century. The natural population increase previously mentioned was supplemented by systematic slave breeding or forced reproduction. In one of his biographies, the former slave and legendary American abolitionist Frederick Douglass wrote that one of his many owners paired his only female slave with one of the males every night. The goal was to induce pregnancy and acquire a new enslaved person completely free of charge. That time, the owner struck gold because, according to Douglass, the woman soon carried twins, valuable additions to the owner's collection. There even existed whole breeding farms throughout the South. Another feature was that a very strict view of race emerged in the United States, permeating society. Despite the forced sexual encounters between master and slave that blurred so-called racial boundaries, such interactions were officially deemed morally reprehensible and legally regulated. Interracial marriage was only sanctioned in the United States in 1967. The black and white divide was so stark that one drop rules were established to maintain racial hierarchies and discourage quote unquote interbreeding. Different American states had different definitions, but the common thread was that individuals with even a hint of black African ancestry were classified as black. Some states considered a person black if they had at least one-sixteenth of black blood. Others required even less. Some states even used phrases like any traceable amount of black blood. Without such a rigid system, it's plausible that the black population in the United States would have been absorbed more by the white majority. Instead, black people constitute roughly 14% of the population today – around 42 million inhabitants – about a hundred times more than the number of enslaved people once imported. And this can be compared with, for example, the colonies that belong to Portugal and Spain, places with vast numbers of enslaved Africans. These colonies lacked racial distinctions as strict as those in the United States, and as a result, sexual intercourse and relationships across racial lines were more common, leading to modern countries like Brazil, the Dominican Republic and Cuba having a large proportion of mixed-race inhabitants. Consider New Spain, Spain's colony from the 16th to the 19th century, which included present-day Mexico, Guatemala, Costa Rica, and the southwestern parts of the United States. Slavery was a crucial part of the economy, and black people were a significant part of the population. Although the enslaved obviously endured horrors and oppression, the slave system in New Spain was not as rigid as in the United States. Leading to more, so to speak, intermarriage and opportunities for enslaved people to buy their freedom. Unlike the US, New Spain didn't adhere to one drop rules. Instead, they developed a complex system categorizing ethnicities. In the 18th century, casta paintings became popular, illustrating 16 possible ethnicities and mixes. They included mestizo the offspring of a Spaniard and a native, mulatto, the offspring of a Spaniard and an African, and zambu, the offspring of an African and a native. As in most other places in the world, however, black people were placed at the bottom of the hierarchy, while those who were mixed in various ways had a more advantageous position, while whites, of course, were at the top. THE SEEDS OF COLORISM were planted early. Another example can be found in a completely different part of the world. In countries like Iraq, Iran, and India, there are black minorities whose origins can be traced to the slave trade via the Sahara, the Red Sea, and the Indian Ocean. However. The fact that the black minorities there are not more prominent or more visible to us today can probably also be linked to a more fluid view of race. During the Muslim world's thousand-year slave trade with sub-Saharan Africans, this view may have made it so that a large number of imported black Africans have long since been absorbed by the local majority populations. There's always more to say, but these examples serve to illustrate how transatlantic slavery could differ based on location. Regional variations, regulations, and practices could look vastly different, so it would be a mistake to assume everything mirrored the situation in the US. Of course, the purpose with this is not to rank one as better or worse than the other, but to highlight the significant differences and emphasize that we must factor in the whole picture to fully comprehend this tragic chapter in human history. To fully grasp how the transatlantic slave trade has reshaped the world, it's best to zoom in and examine some local situations. So we'll return to this period many times in the future. Another topic for future discussions is what finally brought the transatlantic slave trade to an end in the 19th century after more than 400 years. The advent of enlightenment with its ideas of reason and freedom is often highlighted but a complex mix of ideological, religious, and primarily economic factors come into play. To replace the income from slavery, the West in the 19th century transitioned to legitimate trade. Instead of people, products such as rubber, palm oil, ivory, and copper would be extracted from Africa. So what followed the transatlantic slave trade was a seamless transition to the European colonization of Africa. Transatlantic slavery was devastating to Africa, yet it was through the toil, blood and suffering of the enslaved that the nations of America grew. Some historians believe that America, neither North nor South, could have been fully colonized without slave labor, or that it at least would have taken considerably longer or, as historian James Walvin writes in his book Freedom, The Overthrow of the Slave Empires, Of all the people, Europeans and Africans, who landed in the Americas before 1820, the Atlantic slave ships transported 80%. African slaves were the major pioneers of great expanses of the Americas. The misery and suffering on the slave vessels, first widely exposed in the late 18th century, have haunted the public imagination ever since. Yet, despite the slave ships' fearsome death rate, and despite the damage they inflicted on the survivors, the Atlantic slave trade laid the foundations for an astonishing commercial success. The survivors of the Atlantic crossing, in the words of David Brian Davis, Became indispensable in creating the prosperous New World that by the mid 19th century began attracting millions of voluntary European immigrants. African slaves were the foundation on which later societies were built. End quote. The role slavery played in developing the U.S. as a prominent nation is still debated among historians. In his book, The Half Has Never Been Told, Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism from 2014, the American historian Edward E. Baptist writes, From 1783, at the end of the American Revolution, to 1861, the number of slaves in the United States increased five times over, and all this expansion produced a powerful nation for white enslavers were able to force enslaved African-American migrants to pick cotton faster and more efficiently than free people. Their practices rapidly transformed the southern states into the dominant force in the global cotton market, and cotton was the world's most widely traded commodity at the time, as it was the key raw material during the first century of the Industrial Revolution. The returns from cotton monopoly powered the modernization of the rest of the American economy, and by the time of the Civil War, the United States had become the second nation to undergo large-scale industrialization." Quote. Now the exact impact is still disputed, but the profound influence of transatlantic slavery on everything from economics to public health is undeniable. Several problems we see across the western hemisphere today such as racism and the unequal economic distribution between whites and blacks can also be traced back to the days of transatlantic slavery. These are just a few reasons why this period is essential to study, analyze and understand. Thank you for listening to Black History Unveiled with me, Amat Levine, and the second part about transatlantic slavery. If you've listened this far and liked what you've heard, check out patreon.com slash blackhistoryunveiled to gain access to ad-free episodes, maps and pictures, bonus episodes, and more. You'll also find a comprehensive list of sources for this episode. You'll also help me out tremendously if you share the podcast on social media, recommend it to someone you know, or give it a rating or a review on the podcast app of your choice. There is, of course, so much more to say about the topic of transatlantic slavery, and we will return to it several times, but in a more small-scale way. We will examine how it looked in and affected specific local regions. Later in the season, we'll, for example, go in depth about the Haitian revolution. But I hope that with these two episodes, I've been able to give you an overview of this extremely dark part of our history. The next main episode will be about something completely different and will be released in a few weeks. In the meantime, I'll be back with a couple of shorter episodes. I'll see you guys next week. Peace.